Hello everybody and welcome to the fourth episode of Coding in Africa. I'm your host Mark Clark. As I say before, I work for an open source solutions development company here in Johannesburg, South Africa called Jumping Bean. And today I'm joined by my co-host Dan Fala. Hi Dan, how are you? Hey, how are you, Mark? What's up? Oh, good, thanks, man. Uh, I just been this morning. I just went to quickly grab breakfast before we started recording the show, and I normally take my dog Einstein with me. Uh, you know, so I have to find like a sort of semi-dog friendly place where you can sit outside, and uh, you know, she she sits on my lap, my lap, and everything like that. So it all went quite well. I was quite relieved, you know, because a new place, and it's the second time we've been there. Uh, so you know, as a it's, it's got like an open area space, sort of in the like a garden kind of setting. And then I normally carry the dog with me to get outside the entrance and put her down because she follows me and stuff like that. And the unfortunate thing this time was when I put her down, there was a chicken uh, sitting there. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so all hell broke loose. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, she was chasing the chicken all over the place and I was chasing the dog. And, I mean, I know those chickens are dumb. I mean, they can fly, right? But this thing uh-huh. consists on running, uh, running around instead of just like flying up somewhere. Anyway. Well, that sounds very comical. Uh, <laughs> I could hear the Benny Hill theme uh, playing in the background. Yeah, uh, it was a bit, you know, and I was tired because like yesterday I was doing a lot of, uh, we, we, were, we were doing some, um, what should I call it, there's a project we got at the office to roll out some RP cameras and stuff like that, which I might talk about next week. So there was a bit of exercise pulling cables through the ceilings and things like that and lifting boards and I didn't really have anybody to assist. It was a bit of a bit of a mission. I was a bit tired. And then I had to like spend the morning running around after my dog. She's she's mm. about ten years old, but you know, when the Jack Russell uh, sees something it wants to chase then <laughs> Sure, right. <laughs> it's got a lot of energy. So yeah. I had a good exercise this morning. So I'm a little bit I'm a little bit tired. I hope they allow me back there. Luckily, thank goodness, she never got hold of the chicken. I think finding mm-hmm. the chicken, uh, I think instead of flying up, the chicken jumped jumped off the wall. Um, oh, like, it's like okay. a ledge, right? And then my, the dog didn't want to, didn't know how to get down after it. So that was, thank goodness, you know, put her in the car. Sure. have to wait now two or three weeks before you can go back then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was, that was my morning, you know, so, yeah. And yourself, Dan? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I guess now's a good time as any to say that this is the first time when both of us are actually recording from Africa. <laughs> I'm, uh, now I'm in Ethiopia, so I'm only, a, a few hours, what time is it for you? Uh, the, uh, UTC plus two and you UTC plus three, or you're talking yeah. about flat time. This is no, I hour. just, yeah. yeah, I'm just, um, very close in time too, so my morning roughly was your morning as well so uh yeah i just had a nice sort of um breakfast with the wife and uh did some laundry and that's really it kind of yeah. had kind of had a slow morning here in addis yeah slow mornings are always good yeah, yeah. and this side it's a long weekend as well so that's that's pretty cool for us on monday we've got uh time off it's national women's day yeah in south africa so it's always good to uh, i'm always doing something in terms of research or um, building some systems, so it's great from that point of view. But you just don't have the hassle of people phoning and you know the normal business admin stuff that happens, which is like really, really irritating and breaks your flow of thought and all of that stuff. So I'm looking forward sure. to that. <laughs> great. Anyway, what what have we got on the show today, Dan? So um, we are going to do our normal sort of uh, sections, show and tell. Uh, 
you're going to tell me about a crimping tool to start off with, right? Yeah, or, or problems with crimping tools. <laughs> problems with crimping tools. And then we'll follow it up with a discussion on using free tools online and trusting the cloud, followed by uh, what we both learned this week. And uh, this is actually what we learned over the last three weeks, I guess, right? Um, at least for me. And uh, yeah, and then we'll end up with a good guide as usual. Oh, excellent stuff. Okay, first of all, let me just say this show is once again sponsored by um, LPR Southern Africa. Uh, Jumping Bean is a master affiliate for LPR Southern Africa, and they have graciously agreed to sponsor the show. So they'll you know, pay for a few things like hostings or um, getting artwork done and that kind of stuff. So thanks very much for that. Um, and LPR, I think people might know, is the Linux Professional Institute. They're the guys uh, that are responsible for setting the, the certifications and the exams for LPR Level 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, that's quite, that's a vendor-neutral certification. It's quite highly regarded in the industry and it's an international certification in Linux for basically people who are um, Linux system administrators, of which there are more and more these days because basically the cloud is Linux. So you know, everybody needs to, to kind of know Linux. And uh, the go-to one, if you want to vendor neutral certifications, allows you to administrate any sort of Linux distribution, whether it's Debian-based or whether it's RPM-based. Um, you know, this is the certification for, for those, for system administrators who are interested in those kind of skills. And it's also, you know, if you're quite honest, over the time, there's been quite a few uh, Linux certifications doing their rounds. A lot of them have disappeared. And LPR is still around, and that just is a testament to the strength and the quality of the LPR certification, how it's regarded in the in the workspace. So I, mean, I know from LPR they've got you know all, all these big organisations like Facebook, etc., all interested in LPR, always talking to them because they like to have their people certified as you know, LPR certified Linux administrators for their tasks and tools. So yeah, if you're interested in that, go check out south-africa.lpr.org. Or you can email operations at south-africa.lpi.org. One day when we get our show notes together, we'll make sure all of these things appear in the show notes. So if you listen to this while you're driving to work or while you're on the car train or something like that, you know you can always go to the show notes office and pick it up. Otherwise, uh, there's always your good friend Google or DuckDuckGo. Um, go and uh, use the search engines and search for South Africa LPI.org. You should uh, find us there. Okay, so I think we're into our first section is the, the show and tell thing. Just to let you know, there's some other stuff which I put off to, to next episode because when we uh, finish off the projects, all the stuff about RP cameras and analog cameras and stuff like that, which is quite interesting. I spent most of the week um, doing that, which is why, I'm, also as I alluded to in the introduction, I had to do a lot of um, pulling cables to the roofs and lifting um, ceiling board tiles and all of that kind of stuff. And that also leads into what I want to talk about in the sort of show and tell, which is crimping tools. And it's more, I suppose, a warning than anything else, you know, uh, about about crimping tools. Because, you know, I, I don't do a lot of uh, cable termination, but we can make our own cables, our own coax connections, and our own uh, Ethernet connections and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, if you haven't done it for a while, maybe you have to you have to terminate the, the cable once or twice before you, you get the connections right. But, uh, you know, I thought I can't be that bad because I was spending about two hours and this thing still wasn't connecting. All of the, all of the points were connecting, mm-hmm. you know, your usual cable tester, so all of the all of the lines were connecting, except for line one, which is never connecting. Mm. And so, you know, you don't know which side is the one that hasn't been terminated. Probably you have to redo both sides. It's still not working. 
you know, it was just exercise in frustration. So eventually right. I thought, no, it's the cable that's broken. There must be a break in the cable somewhere because right. I really can't be that bad <laughs> at terminating it, you know. Uh-huh. Well, it is a sort of uh, fiddly operation. Um, in, the, in the past when I've done these sort of cable terminations, it's difficult. And, you know, it's, I mean, it sort of like requires some fine motor skills to actually get um, the individual um, wires into their right places. Yeah, I, mean, I would agree, but it's, uh, obviously it's, practice makes perfect. If you're doing it every day, if you're one of these guys doing installations like that, then you can do it in like five minutes or so, you know, mm. do it very quickly. Um, now, and I've got reasonable, reasonable at it because I kind of know what you have to look for. So this is the whole thing, you know, with, with experience and what's between experience and knowledge, right? Um, experience, you kind of know what to look out for. So my experience I've learned in the past is you've got to make sure that the um, that you expose enough of the wires. I mean, obviously, they've got to be in the right order. Um, but that's fairly easy enough to just go and check online all the time. Every time I do, I just quickly refresh my memory. And the key thing is you're going to push them in far enough so that when you crimp down on the on the connectors, they actually cut into the wires, right? Make a connection. Mm-hmm. So sometimes um, people don't push them in further enough and that kind of stuff. You know, so I, I checked all of that and I was a little bit perplexed why one, I could see, you know, you look through the, the, the plastic, clear plastic covering uh, for the plug. And you can see, like it's it's connected. So why isn't it picking up? Isn't it picking up one? Right. And um, this this crimping tool I've had for a while. You know, it's weird in terms of the the cutter to sort of you know when you once you've got your your wires in the correct order and you need to just cut them to make them even and straight. That also malfunctions every now and then and it wouldn't wouldn't work properly. It would kind of it would kind of remove the plastic sheathing around the wires, but it wouldn't actually cut them off. So you'll end up with basically unusable, you have to cut again to do it. But I could live with that. I, and I thought I never had any other problems with it. But what, what ended up being the case after a while, I discovered that for some reason that the crimping tool wasn't actually crimping uh, wire one, right, which is the first wire. Okay, so sorry, Dan, we got cut off there. The call just dropped. This is, I think, one of the challenges that we have in, in Africa, especially you know, between African countries there. So I'm not quite sure what happened, but I thought I was just talking to myself and suddenly, you know, I started getting the ringing sound in my ear and I was calling. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> at least at least it's all, uh, we're back online. So let's, let's, hopefully we don't have too many of these where there's a little bit of a, a break in the in the flow of the, of the discussion, but yeah. Yeah, between the power and the internet here in uh, Addis, it's sort of... Uh... There's always an opportunity for uh, things to go wrong. <laughs> you know, power is also becoming an issue uh, in South Africa. But, uh, I could actually maybe just briefly mention that later as well. But, you know, we lost one of our virtual machines, which was a little bit irritating. We managed to get it back. But anyway, uh, thank you, ESCOM, for, for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as I was saying, the, the crimping tool. So it turns out the crimping tool, for some reason, wasn't uh, – it was crimping all of the – other connectors have connector one. So it was sticking up. So the way I discovered it, the first of all, what I hate about it when your tool fails, because you trust your tool, right? And so mm-hmm. it's not working. So you're thinking, what am I doing wrong? And you question your conceptual model. And the more you do it, the more uncertain you become about what you, you know, what you're doing. It's often right. like this when, you, when you, especially when you're learning a new skill, you know, you don't know whether it's a tool, whether it's you, whether what the story is. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, so that often makes learning when you don't have somebody to show you stuff a little bit of a difficult Difficult process because somebody shows you they can tell you no, you're doing this wrong. This is just as an aside is what people don't understand about experience versus knowledge. 
you know, why you pay a lot more for a, a consultant per hour who comes in and uh, who's got experience than you do for someone who's inexperienced is because they know these things. An inexperienced person, like, look at me, right? Now I ended up wasting probably two to three hours on this thing. Right. Uh, when it wasn't even my fault. I've had more experience if I've known I could check the tool. Yeah. Because, I, you know, you've got more confidence in your own skill that you've done this before and you've seen it working hundreds of times. So why is it failing? Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, the way, the way I find it was I ran my, you know, you run your thumb over the, over the metal, the copper contacts on the, on the plug, and I could feel the one was raised. So anyway, that, that tool is now sitting at the bottom of some landfill somewhere, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a new one. So I always like, you know, make sure. That, I guess what I'm saying is if you're going to be uh, making your own cables, just check these things. And besides the wiring, get a, get a tester, obviously. But also just simple things like run your finger over the – you know, over the connectors. Obviously, by the time I'd done this about, you know, six times and still and and line and wire one still wasn't connecting, I was beginning to question what the hell was going on. But I, I didn't think to test the tool. I was just thinking well, maybe the test is broken or maybe it's working anyway. But yeah, you know, so it seems to be the the actual crimping tool itself. If there's anything you should you should trust, it's the tester. I would say. Yeah. <laughs> In my experience. You know, whenever you start thinking, oh, maybe the tester is broken, it's usually not. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's basically when you when you're at the at your wits end, and you know it's the last straws you're clutching at because you've done everything right, you triple, you know, double check, triple checked everything, and it still doesn't seem to be working. As I say, actually, the one I was going to come to was I thought, well, I must take this roll of cable back and tell them that there's a break in it somewhere, and I want a refund. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the only yeah. other explanation I could think of was that all the other points were connecting. So maybe there's a fault with, with wire one. I'm not quite sure, you know, when you get these things from these cable companies like GigaCore, whether how they test before they send it out that there's no break in the wire somewhere mm. else along the line. So anyway, uh, that's my cautionary tale for for the audience out there. <laughs> right. Um, why were you, why did you have to crimp cables anyway in the first place? Well, for the this project I was telling you about the, the IP cameras, I had to run wires to connect the IP cameras through to the um, central server uh, where we could do the monitoring. Why couldn't you just use uh, normal cables? Yeah, there were normal cables, but I need ones that are quite long because you know, they have to go right. to the building. So I mean, that's one thing I did do to test the tester. I got like an existing cable that I know, knew was working and plugged, you know, because you can plug both ends into it and tested it. So I knew that the actual cable the tester wasn't wasn't actually faulty sure which you know you know so that was a bit disappointing because i was kind of hoping that <laughs> maybe it was that right okay so moving on to the to the next section um so the, the section is about using free tools in cloud on the internet well obviously on the internet um using using cloud services etc and, and becoming reliant i think there's a bit of a confluence of issues and happenings and things like that we can have a discussion around that so Dan, I don't know if you want to let us know what the. I think if you kick us off, what we're doing is what one of the decisions we have to make is where we're going to host our little coding in Africa website. And I, I'm, I, I think Dan is keen on things like GitHub, and I'm not so keen on that. And just sort of understanding, you know, what, why, because not just a, a technical preference thing, and sort of uh, principles behind why, well, for my side, why I prefer one over the other, and what the dangers are and what the trade-offs are. So Dan, I don't know if you want to start. Yeah, I've gotten really used to this, you know, uh, idea of hosting statically generated sites with GitHub pages, using GitHub issues to 
you know, and sort of to track tasks in general, like not even necessarily related to code, but, you know, just general tasks. And, you know, I've just gotten so used to it. It's sort of like a default for me. And um, I know you had a preference for using something, you know, using something more homegrown or less dependent on some, you know, big corporate entity like uh, Drupal to host your site. Yeah, look, you know, for, for me, I think GitHub, um, I'm quite happy to use it to store source code on and um, if you want to use like a bug list or, or things like that. I'm not that keen on using it as a kind of website hosting platform. I know they use Jekyll. The technology, you, you're more familiar with this, but they use, basically it's, it's just Markdown, right? Or you can use Jekyll to statically generate your pages and things like that. Essentially, I mean, you know, it's sort of, you, you use, uh, they use Jekyll. But you can actually just host uh, static HTML, though I'm not sure what situations would call for that. But yeah, you can use Jekyll to sort of generate a site that uses Markdown or doesn't use Markdown. Uh, that's sort of an option. And it's just, uh, you know, it, it sort of uh, it gives me a good feeling, I think, to not have to think too hard about databases and security and so on. And then you can still have like interactivity by embedding some like you know sophisticated JavaScript uh, on your front end, so yeah, I mean that's kind of my general inclination. But uh, in terms of things like forums and um, other sort of more interactive stuff, you can't really do that on on GitHub, other than using another third party service. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, my sort of inclination would be to sort of to use something really cool and new like discourse forums which uh which i think are really actually very very um sophisticated and you can still you know own it you can still control it you can still control your own discourse server and uh instance if you are so inclined but yeah it wouldn't be sort of embedded in the site which i think is i'm not even that keen on having like a big complex site that you know incorporates forums directly. I mean, I like having, I like the idea of like having one set of software dealing with one set of issues, like, you know, displaying the latest episodes and then one, another set of software like discourse handling forums because that's what discourse is good at. So that's that's sort of my idea. You know, what do you think? Yeah. Well, for me, it's, is a couple of things. So what, what is, is, is like, you know, if you lay the wrong foundations, there's much difficulty change later. So there's a, a bit of a trade-off. I can understand sort of hosting your your project page or your how-to kind of on, on GitHub, right? You know, if you've done some project here or if there's something like that. Um, but I think, yeah, so that's, that's the one the one concern. But also another concern just in general for me is like, I think with the advent of cloud and software as a service, people, a lot of your build sites are all these like third-party services. And to me, there's bound to be a problem at some stage. You know, you're relying on these guys. I mean, you want to use some of their services. So yes, things like spam filtering or getting discus to kind of you know, handle spam because you don't want to make it too much of a big mission and manage it yourself. But there's many ways of using third-party services, which if they disappeared, you're not, you're not screwed. Um, you know, so for example, in Drupal, you'll have your, you'll have your forums. It's a standard sort of Drupal component. But you can use something like Molon to third-party service to stop spam. So it just calls out every time somebody posts. But you've got the content on your side. Um, it manages the spam for you. So I assume it will even be a plugin for Discus if, you, if you're really that, that keen on using it. But to me, it's like, you know, you don't know where you're going to take things later. So let's say suddenly you want to set up a registration form or 
we want to start selling t-shirts or you know you, you'll, you'll be stuck on github or you'll have to go and use yet another third-party service you know there's always a danger with these third-party services and this also sort of leads into uh, i think we're going to title this episode cloudy scars it's like my concerns about these cloud services is they can just change because it's software as a service it can just change on you without you even knowing about it which i think is extremely extremely dangerous sure we know you know i'll say that uh you know when you're hosting your site on github it's trivial to take that same source and build it somewhere else on like uh you know on another server like on a just you know totally on your on your own sort of hosting space you can just port your Jekyll source and build your site there like it's no big deal and uh and discourse you know like i said you know discourse i think uh, just to make sure we're talking about the same thing discourse is that um big Ruby on Rails app that um, is like a full forum. Not, and I'm not talking about Discuss. Are you talking about Discuss? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the party sort of yeah. that you see embedded everywhere. Yeah. yeah, Discuss is like, yeah, that's a sort of third party, that uh, third party cloud solution that I'm not super keen on. But Discourse, you would own yourself. You would own the entire thing. Uh, but how would you run that in GitHub? You wouldn't run it on, you would run it on another server. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, on your own server, you know. Okay, uh, that makes a little bit more, you know, gives me a little bit more comfort. I guess the, the thing is, is, is whether it's sort of build your own or, or use something like, like Drupal, because if, if you wanted to then uh, add, a, add an, say, let's say, an e-commerce site or portion to the site or something like that, uh, you'd also have to go and then develop that yourself. Or would, you, or would you use some other Ruby on Rails component or something? I think for the right solution, for for a given kind of solution, this situation that I'm talking about doesn't I mean you know using GitHub or using Discourse doesn't yeah. really scale that much. Like because you probably want to do special things that aren't supported by those uh, platforms. But I think for our you know modest podcast, I think we don't need. So much right now. You must think. You got to think. Think on <laughs> the long term, Dad. Right. Okay. T-shirts. We need uh, t-shirts, t- right? Yeah, we need t-shirts. Yeah. You know, eventually, and, and stuff like that. So you know, we, let's see where it goes. Right. Yeah, okay, no, I'm with you. That makes you a little bit more comfortable. Uh, I, I do think. You know, one of the things I want to talk about in terms of relating to this, in terms of the cloud stuff as well, is that you know, recently in South Africa, one of the major uh, service providers. They uh, apparently, according to the press release, they did some update to some VMware images, and basically they lost everybody's virtual machine. And then their response oh. was, "Well, you know, we're not responsible for your data," which is technically true, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I suppose guess who's going to be mainly using cloud services? They're going to be SMEs, and probably you're going to find that their backups aren't that regular. And you know, so I know it's not their responsibility legally. But still, you don't want to build on a on a service which is unreliable, and this is what I think people often ignore when they look at using the cloud as a solution. Because the way it's built, I mean, there's many things that the cloud does, right, which is increased flexibility and better utilization of resources. And that's that's the main thing for big companies. But cloud is often sold as like, oh look, don't worry, it's so easy to do. Just get your developer. It doesn't have to contact. It's just admin. You can just click a few buttons, and next minute, the he or she's deployed the application to the cloud or on the service. Um, and I think a lot of it is actually talks more to the inflexibility of organizational IT and the structures and all of those pieces of paper, and basically human beings being unproductive, rather than 
any anything that's super duper great about the cloud. But you know, often to SMEs, it's sold as this way of like, hey, guess what? You don't need a system administrator anymore. You can do it yourselves. Don't worry. The developer can also be this is admin, and you can just download some project, click a few buttons, and now you have whatever installed, whether it's VTiger or you know OS Ticket or some kind of application, and, and, you, and you're all good to go. You know, so that does increase productivity, but it, it's sort of the way it's sold to people is it's it's easy and there's nothing to worry about, and that's not the case. You know, you still need some good system administration policies in the background. You need a system administrator that knows what they're doing and, and how to recover and what the pros and cons are. Uh, so that's the one thing about terms of, you know, some people also debate, is having a virtual private server really cloud? And I'll say, look, you know, it depends what you're talking about, but if you're talking about marketing cloud, then yes, it is. If people market cloud, that's what cloud is marketed at sometimes. Um, obviously, I know things like, like um, OpenStack and all of that kind of thing, which is far more what the real cloud is all about. And that, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say, for me, the advantage of the cloud is great, but you run it internally, you know. Don't go and run it on an external service where you we at the mercy of some other service provider. Um, you know the, the the argument might be well, you know, you need quite a bit of infrastructure before you can start doing that because you know you need at least three or four servers and all of this kind of stuff. But I still think uh, that's what people should be more considering than using these third-party services. Or just one big server. Yeah, or just one big server. But for me, that's the whole thing, right? So if you don't want to run OpenStack, it's quite co- possible to run something like. Um, the, what's the Apache project called? Now I have to look up its name again. But, you know, sort of the the version of like a digital ocean service that's running on your own infrastructure. Okay? So that's not really cloud in the sense that um, you're going to be migrating. Maybe behind the scenes they're migrating stuff for you. You know, you, you yourself as a, as a user of that just sort of see it as a virtual machine. Mm-hmm. Now just that name of it, I think it's called Apache Cloud Stack, which is I think far more usable for, for SMEs as one like big server. I'm actually so much to do list to to download um, CloudStack from Apache and try it out because you know using OpenStack is just way overkill in many scenarios. Anyway, but the so so I can't say using internal, but using external services, I think people are just being a bit too bit too gung ho about it. They're not putting proper policies and practices in place to to manage that scenario. Besides the fact that all these concerns about um, spying and security over your data and all of that. Stuff which, in and of itself, should be enough to make give somebody pause before porting all their data to strange places where they don't even know where it's sitting, when, and who's got access to it. But you know, there's all the other administrative stuff around it, all the good practices and, and policies. You can't just throw that out. I mean, sometimes in the IT departments, those yes, I think human beings always use the excuse, oh, I'm waiting for the manager to approve it, and the manager, oh, I'm waiting for this person, and they now leave. And it's always the same thing when you phone these big enterprises. There's always somebody in hospital. Or somebody overseas, and this was holding things up. You know I mean, mm-hmm. but you know, also some of those policies are in place for for good reasons. But even you know, putting aside sort of using your own server, like a VPS, or whether it's a proper cloud server that you might can migrate from, you know, data center to data center. There's also the software as a service, which for me is a little bit concerning. And, and the example I can use, right? So one of the things we do on our website for our training calendars is we use um, Google calendars to manage it because if you have to try and update calendars with any other thing it's, it's just like a horrible mission mm-hmm. so uh, you know we the, the training coordinator can manage the calendar and they just go into Google for domains 
So we, we signed up for Google for Domains when they were offering us the free version. You could have like up to five people on your organization free, right? Sure. We started using it once. Uh, the idea was the mail goes to Google because they've got good spam filters and we pull it down by fetch mail into our own servers. And what, the reason we stopped using it because one day we would use fetch mail, fetch mail just stopped working with, with using the IMAP um, protocol to pull the mail down. And it happened in one mailbox in the next mailbox. And so basically, we weren't having local copies of our, of our emails. And when we contacted Google, they said, well, you know, yeah, we don't really implement IMAP properly. It's not our problem. We're not going to do it because they basically don't want you to, they want you to store everything on their servers. Sure. Uh, so essentially, we just stopped using it. Uh, but we keep it there mainly to share some documents, like, you know, small stuff that we don't have to keep into. It's easier to, to manage that way. So, you know, one of the things, for example, we're using for is for calendars, you know, mm-hmm. and it's quite nice. I can set up the the, 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 so the training coordinator. They can maintain the calendars. But what, what happened is, is like, like any company, we don't have a dedicated web, developer, web designer or web master or whatever you want to call them. And it just appeared that one day Google somehow just changes the, the way its, its calendars display data. So I think it introduced a new permissions system where you had to explicitly go and sort of say, well, this person can only, I never worked out exactly what changed, but basically the calendars weren't showing. Then the, we said, okay, show them. But then they're only showing is busy time and not free time. So they weren't showing what the event was like, whether it's Postgres training or Java training or whatever it is. Right. So yeah, I had to go and waste my time stuffing around trying to find out what changed and eventually had to set these permissions and it started working again. But, you know, for how long was those calendars not working? Right. You, you don't know because there was no warning. This is the thing, these guys, you know, you build your business, you're going to rely on some services from them, and they might just change it just like that. Right. And, and now you must scramble to, to update all of your systems. And, you know, thank goodness we, we have a deliberate policy of not being too reliant on these uh, third-party services uh, precisely because of that. So I think there's a danger there, uh, you know, that people aren't aware of. You know, Google – you know, so the traditional approach was you must wait for the new version of whatever application to come out before you can start using new features. Another side, well, we just continually roll and update new features, and you're so lucky because you get these new features without even having to upgrade, but they can break things. Uh, there's no testing process. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not in the same sort of business as you are, so I don't think about these things in the same exact way. But yeah, just as a end user of a lot of a lot of these um, services, yeah, I mean that's sort of like the way things are now, you know, this continual release cycle, and you know, even just as an end user, it's really annoying to have to like rethink about how I'm like working with Google Contacts, say, or Google or Gmail even, which yeah, will totally change their interface every you know six months or so just to satisfy some need they have that may or may not answer a need I have, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat, just, you know, just as an end, from an end-user perspective. Yeah, so I think, you know, people should always just take it into account. You know? I mean, I, I mean, it's like things like, you know, like TeamViewer, the ubiquity, ubiquity of TeamViewer. So, you know, but you're sending all of your stuff through to some third-party server somewhere. Or maybe I've got the architecture wrong of TeamViewer, but I'm pretty sure there will be some central server somewhere that's, getting you to talk to each other. I'm not quite sure whether your whole session goes to that or once they just use to set up the, you know, like a session initiation protocol kind of thing. And once it's established, they remove themselves from the picture and you talk directly to each other. But yeah, you know, people, 
become more and more reliant on these things, you know, just given security and in all of these, you know, another thing with the cloud is it's supposed to be, oh, don't worry, you know, your IT guy, what can what can they do? They're not that jacked up on security or they're too busy to keep on top of everything. Don't worry, we'll do it for you. And yet just about every single uh, major service provider in the cloud space, as far as I'm aware, has been hacked in some way or more as a software as a service. So whether it's LinkedIn or a few other guys, there was a recent one as well. You know, it's actually not more secure. I'm, I'm sure it's more secure than your probably local site, right? But it becomes like, what is a more tempting target? You, you want to go, like, who that, 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 that site that allows people, married people to cheat or whatever they recently got hacked, right? Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison. So these guys now, don't worry, we're more secure, but there's more of a target because, uh, you know, that's where all the money is, right? Like, why do you rob banks? You know, I think it was Al Capone. Awesome, why do you rob banks? He said, that's because that's where the money is. So, I mean, why are you going to, <laughs> why are you going to rather try and hack LinkedIn or Facebook or, or something else rather than hacking some little server sitting somewhere in the data center because that's where all the money is. Right? I mean, you're going to have a little, you know. Um, so, so it's, it's, a, it's a case of, it's not necessarily saying trying to protect yourself. Look, you know, as the saying goes, as people kind of acknowledge, if somebody wants to break into your stuff, they will, right? If they've got infinite resources, etc., such as governments, uh, there's not much you can really do about it. You can just slow them down or make it a bit more difficult for them and maybe get an alert when something has happened you know, and monitor it, but you can't really prevent them. Uh, but often the case, most of these guys, is opportunistic crime. They're going to go there and sort of see, well, who's the easiest to, to get into and what's the payoff? You know, so, so I don't know. I think, I think, people, I think people should, should kind of – uh, separate the marketing talk from the reality and then do a bit more sober assessment of cloud and how they're going to use it, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, well, that's my my little uh, thoughts on, on, on cloud computing at the moment. Dan, is there anything else you want to talk about in the discussion sort of section or should we move on to what, what, what I learned this week? Yeah, well, we haven't decided whether we're gonna, what we're going to use for our site. <laughs> oh, 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 I think we, you know, I, I, look, I acknowledge... You're always more keen to use what you're familiar with, right? So, so for me, it's, it's the reason I like Drupal is because it's, it's everything's there, right? If you want to add something, it'll be quick to do and easy to do. To be quite honest as well, one of the things I'm concerned about are things like theming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as soon as you've got like a custom site and you're going to theme it, then it's, it's more difficult to theme. It's not done in a nice packaged way. Right. Uh, with Drupal, we can. You know, to be quite honest, there's another section we can talk about some other times, like outsourcing. We can just outsource this theme development to somebody and get them to, to design the theme for us uh, rather than us doing it. And I think it's easier to say, hey, we want somebody that's familiar with Drupal theming. And then it's easier to take over that theme because you kind of know, you know how it's going to work. Um, yeah. You've got some ideas of, of themes. You know, it's difficult. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, in this sort of, I guess we can talk about this later or another episode. Well, I think it's sort of, great to like outsource say you know editing or hosting you know like sort of mindless stuff to someone else it becomes a little different when it's sort of a creative task that you have to sort of you sort of have to be your identity so outsource the theme and the style of our site is something i have to be a bit more comfortable with you know handing that over to someone else you know not that I have the time really to work on a really awesome, you know, branded site, but you know, it's sort of that's the sort of tension I have. I don't know if you feel the same way. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the thing for me. I'd love to do it myself or you know, do it ourselves, but time is now as business, the pace of business seems to be picking up more and more. I'm thinking about my availability and things I could do, you know, even as little as two to three years ago. Just now it just seems that there's, there's absolutely no time. So, you know, because also it, it is a case of they're never going to be able to do it the way you really want it. And it does increase your workload slightly because now you have to manage them. And as you say, sort of getting to understand who, what we're about. You know, this is a little bit like writing software. We go to a customer and say, we don't know what the customer wants. And they keep on changing their mind. And, you know, costs are escalating, but they don't understand why. So it's the same thing with, with doing this. Because right? a lot of it is it's hard to communicate the requirements. Right? You know, you say, you know, it's not like building a house. I want three bedrooms and two bathrooms and that kind of stuff. But even that, it's like, what style of house do you want? If you've got enough money to get that um, picky about the house you're going to build and live in. But so yeah, so it is. But I think also the skills that need to be learned about how you manage people, how you communicate, sure, yeah. and how you effectively get them to to develop stuff. So this is part of the challenge with with outsourcing. I think um, some of it is just normal management stuff, like managing normal human beings, um, trying to get them to do things. But I think the key differences with if you got somebody employed, let's say, to do it, is that because they're embedded in your organization or what you're doing. They kind of know what you're all about and they understand right. the culture and what the aims are and the sort of nuances and subtleties which are difficult to express to some people. So if somebody comes out, we're all about open source in Africa. Okay. Um, so now their perception of what Africa is, they might not even know what open source is. They might think Apple's open source or something, you know, and they don't. So that, that, that's where the difference So it's also about uh, maybe this is, you know, we can talk about it now or we can leave it for another show, but ha- managing outsourcing. I mean, you, you want to, you have to build a relationship with the with the supplier. Yeah. So they begin to understand who you are, and there's going to be some costs up front, which is like finding the right person, finding the right fit, and also just familiarization time. And I'm quite familiar with that from IT project. You always get these guys coming out, say, hey, you know, we need you to write this app, integrate our payment gateway. We think it should take you two months. Yeah. You say, well, okay, that's what you think. That's because of what it says in your project plan, but we don't know your environment. You know, it's going to take us probably at least like a week, if not longer, to understand what's going on, all the moving parts, because you yourself, you know, the customer doesn't actually understand all the moving parts. So they, they live in it, so they kind of know when something breaks, oh, yeah, it's a system X, uh, which we forgot to tell you about. You know, and just small things like, well, time to, you know, you need to give us access to the database. Yeah. And that's a problem, you know. So, yeah. Anyway, so let's maybe talk about that uh, some other time and move yeah. on to the, to the next section. Cool. Okay, so the next section, what section is that, Dan? So the next section is what I learned this week, or in my case, what I learned in the past three weeks, half of which I've forgotten already. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think for me, you know, I can start with, uh, I can just briefly say what I wanted to start talking about, which is uh, disk recovery using a test disk. I think I mentioned on one of our early episode, earlier episodes that I had a major failure of my um MacBooks uh, SSD and um, yeah, test disk, uh, uh, which is I think you could just app get install test disk came in super handy to um, to you know get a sort of like working backup as soon as possible. I mean, I had some issues, you know, ultimately recovering, but I mean, well, I had, I had some issues that uh, weren't directly related to test disk. But yeah, it was, it was a super useful tool. Have you ever used any disk recovery software? Yeah, I haven't used TestDisk. The favorite ones are TestDisk and PhotoRecord. I always hear about. 
I normally just use DD and try and go from there. <laughs> ah, DD Rescue. Uh, you'd, you'd rather use DD Rescue, I think. Yeah, DD Rescue, yeah. Um, and, and then try and go from there. But I think it's, it sounds like test disk and photo are kind of like DD Rescue, but better, and they manage a whole lot of stuff for you. It's less of a manual process. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does, a, it does a fair bit more. I mean, it can sort of... Um, I think the major thing in my case what that came in handy with test disk is it could sort of um, identify lost partitions. If your partition map is sort of blown away, which was the case in my case, which was my case, it was able to sort of like quickly just say, okay, well, here's where I think the partition should be. And here's your new partition map. And that's something that you could do with DD. I think uh, if you, I think you can figure that out in other ways. But uh, with Testis, you know, it sort of, it automates a lot that you don't have to think about. Yeah, I definitely remember to, to try that next time. This is always interesting because you're always learning more and more about them. You know, because I mean, a partition really is just some kind of entry, like, okay, I'm starting from here and I'm going to there. This is always what I find funny when like you have file system corruption, you run FSCK or something like that, and it doesn't find stuff. You know, well, well why? You know, surely you can just scan the whole disk and, it might take a while, but you can do that, you know, and then kind of start asking where are your super blocks and things like that. At least the super blocks I can't understand a bit more. And, you know, just talking about disk rescue, but the only disk rescue I had was, as I was saying, with, with, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't, well, it was ESCOM indirectly, but actually, no, it wasn't ESCOM. It wasn't ESCOM's fault. Okay. Let me, now that I remember what happened, I, I needed, uh, you've got a virtual machine. It's a file, was it's, it's a file based uh, virtual machine. Uh, well, actually, no, it's not a file base. We're, we're using LVM and we're exporting um, iSCSI over Ethernet. Uh, like, so it was a, a iSCSI device or a, what's the word again? An iSCSI device, um, a LUN, which we were seeing. So I was connecting to that as a remote storage. I'll, let's get the terminology right. <laughs> and so I had to expand it because we had a lot of space. So I did a, I did a, I had to do a disk resize on the central storage server and then I had to expand the LVM volume and the file system on it. That worked fine the first time, but then our backup started failing because I forgot to leave space. We use LVM snapshots to do the backups, and I forgot to leave space, so there was no space to create the, the snapshot, so the backup wouldn't work. So then I thought, okay, well, let me shrink the file system because I had created about, I think it was about 40 gigs free space. So I shrink it, you know, free up 500 megs of space for the, for the snapshot, then resize the file system and put good to go. And for some reason, the, the whole thing just didn't work. I think what I, what I normally do is you can do LVM resize and tell it to resize the file system at the same time. And I think I resized the file system and then I did LVM resize. So I didn't let the utility do it all of a sudden. That should work. But I'm not, as I say, I'm not quite sure what happened, but essentially all, all was lost. Alice for Lauren. And um, what I had to do, but uh, I used an opportunity to play around with the file system, see what I could recover, uh, you know, because it's always good to learn more. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the things I discovered was that you can use, because often, you know, you'll have a problem with your file system and ask you where the next super block is, and you, you have no idea. Um, but you can actually run make2fs or mke2fs with a dash n flag, and it says don't create the file system, but display what it would do if there was to create the file system. So it'll tell you where the next super block is, you know? Just don't forget that flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, otherwise you'll lose everything. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, but it's quite interesting because you wouldn't normally think to go to makefs to actually attempt to recover stuff, because as you say, you'll be scared, you'll be wiping out your system. But there's a number of interesting options that you can use, you know, mm-hmm. with it, um, that you can use to sort of query the, the file system. Yeah. And uh, so that one was quite a quite a handy one to, to find out. 
and you know I'll be using that later. Then you can use FSCK with dash B and tell it what block to use as a super block um, to try and uh, re recover your file system. Um, yeah. Anyway, it, 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 I left this bloody thing running. It ran for about eight hours. It still didn't, you know, repairing a whole bunch of stuff. Nothing happened. They just killed it. And, uh, you know, we just restore from backup and, and go from there. But it's always good, as I've you know, been saying, to use these opportunities to learn more and, and to move forward because that's that was quite interesting, right? You know? Yeah. So, and you can also just, what you can also do is recreate your super block. Um, so you can use a dash S option to write the super block and group descriptors only. Yeah. So, you know, it says, yeah, this is useful if all of the super block and backup super blocks are corrupted and a last ditch recovery method is desired. So you can kind of use that so it doesn't destroy your data. Right. Yeah, so I guess what, I'm, you know, what I learned in that process was that MakeFS doesn't mean, well, just wipe out all my data. And this is an interesting thing about, as you were saying with the uh, test disk, you know, your data is all there. Even if you, you ran MakeFS, you told it not to do it, to do a quick format, right? Your data is actually still sitting there. Right. Oh, yeah. So most of it should be recoverable. And, you know, so learning more about disk is always, is always fun. And, and then last, last episode, you, or the episode one, you said that, the failure of SSD was linked to your Wi-Fi card or something. Well, okay. I think what happened um, ultimately is that, um, and uh, I think after, I think since that episode, I sort of did some more testing in my MacBook. And um, I think what happened is my old MacBook had uh, these these ribbon cables that were one for the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and one for the um, hard drive. And these ribbon cables ran along the bottom to sort of just above the bottom case of the laptop and their sort of their their header connections were basically i think rubbing against the the bottom case the the bottom plate oh. as you would say on the laptop and i think both of them got damaged somehow i think by maybe uh my me accidentally putting pressure on that bottom plate mm -hmm. and so you know i think i think at one point the Wi-Fi ribbon cable totally disintegrated and caused um, possibly a, a full like shutdown, you know, in a, in a oh. sort of inopportune time, I suppose, for the SSD. And um, I think that's what probably led to that um, loss of a partition table. I mean, thankfully, nothing else was lost, and the hard mm -hmm. the SSD works totally fine. It just sort of um, that was, I think, what the ultimate cause of uh, cause of my issues were. But obviously, you know, I still haven't fixed it because uh, here in Addis, I can't exactly get a MacBook hard drive ribbon cable or uh, Wi-Fi ribbon cable easily. <laughs> yeah. Does Amazon deliver there or not? Uh, I don't. Uh, I haven't even. <laughs> I haven't even tried. I don't, uh, I don't yeah. think they do. I think you can get deliveries via DHL though. Okay. No, yeah, DHL is everywhere, but yeah. they rip off. But anyway. <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, just the uh, one other thing here, I suppose it's disc-related, was, yeah, as, always, as I say, learning new things about file systems, but at home, yeah, I've got, I think this is where I was getting confused about the ESCOM thing. I've got a ZFS, you know, micro, well, uh, sort of HP micro, micro server, you know, with a whole bunch of disks in there. Hey, me too. Um, yeah, yeah, it worked pretty well. Which one? Which version do you have? Uh, I'm not sure what generation this is. At the office, actually, we just ordered to generation eight, which is the latest generation. When I say later, I think it's from about 2013 or 12, so it's probably uh -huh. aging a bit. Yeah. It's a bit annoying because you know they're probably going to release the new ver new generation tomorrow for the same price. <laughs> right. I have an N36L that I got. 
very early in my time in South Africa. Yeah, yeah now this one, I've, I've maxed the memory out on it because you can run some VMs on it. I'm just wait. It's running FreeBSD. I'm just waiting for... It's actually just come out. It's upgrade to the next version of FreeBSD because then the virtualization solution, which is called Beehive, will be able to create some virtual machines and then maybe run a Linux virtual machine in there. I forgot what project I actually needed the Linux virtual machine for. I think it was for... I wanted to do PPP over, over, over Ethernet uh, to, to just basically take my ADSL modem out of the equation and just make it like a dumb device that just bridged everything. Um, but I couldn't do that in FreeBSD, if I remember correctly. There was some some package that was missing and something like that. So anyway, that that's, I can pick that project up again later. But the, the main thing is I'm running ZFS, and so I was using it as an opportunity to learn a bit about ZFS. But what's odd, like with SCOM power failures, you know, it keeps on coming up, and then the one day it came up and everything was working, but I looked in the screen and there were some like weird error messages, so I thought, okay, that doesn't look good, but I'm too busy to do anything about that right now. And then there was another power cut, and I came back and I booted up, and it just told me, oh, I can't mount this partition uh, or this drive. And, you know, what was a bit... Initially, I thought, because there's two parts. One is, the, the I think when I first installed BSD, either I didn't know enough, or at, the, at that time, it, it wasn't supported. You couldn't boot off a ZFS volume. Mm-hmm. That's complaint. So, oh, okay, the disk has gone. Obviously, the disk was the operating system one, right? Not all the data. So I thought, let me try and investigate and find out what's going on. And eventually, I could detect this drive, but you know, the, it looked like it was dead, right? There's nothing I could really do. But it turns out, and also what's confusing me was, as I say, I thought it was the sort of normal drive where they use UFS on it, and it was just the, the operating system. So you know, I don't have time to like, to reinstall this, and it's a bit of a problem because it's doing all the DHCP and the DNS in the, in the house. You know, plus it's running the Asterisk server and all kinds of stuff, you know, so it was a bit of a, going to look very painful um, few days, and I didn't have the time to, to get it up and running. So basically, I couldn't connect to the internet, only because this thing was handing out DHCP, so I'd have to set up a temporary measure. But as a last-ditch effort, I thought, well, let me just look, see it was, uh, so let me take the drive out. So I took the drive out, after I identified it, I learned a bit about using cam control to, to query hardware, serial numbers, and FreeBSD, took it out, looked at it, put it back in, and then it rebooted up and it came up just fine. And what was odd was that drive actually was part of the ZFS volume. So I should imagine that the FreeBSD should have booted up successfully and it just wouldn't have been able to mount the ZFS pool because mm-hmm. there was no operating system running on it. So I never kind of, once again, due to time limitation, I could never really work out why FreeBSD wouldn't, uh, wouldn't boot up without that partition. In the past, they used to not boot up when there was corruption on the log file system and then I'll just do an FECK on it and it will recover and then away we would go. Um, so it's a bit weird, and it's a bit weird, so there's two things that are weird, one, because supposedly, well, three things, one, ZFS shouldn't fail like that, as far as I understand it, because it's got, because it's got redundancy on it, right, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's not like there's no redundancy, and secondly, why it wouldn't boot up without the there, because it's not where the operating system was sitting, and thirdly, how come when I just pull, pull this thing out and push it back in, it, unless the, the, the domestic worker, yeah, at some stage, I don't know, pulled the disc out and didn't put it back in properly. <laughs> but I, doubt, I highly doubt that. <laughs> that. That's my other theory, you know. Could be, yeah. Right there's there. always a possibility, right? <laughs> no, let me clean this quickly, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's just an interesting story about, about ZFS there. Okay. Um, otherwise, on, on my side, I think, uh, you know, you know I, maybe I'll say it for another episode, just reporting back on the FOG server that we set up. Um, and also talking about the JPA unit that Jumping Bean releases part of Mandela Day 
um, commemorations. You know, Mandela Day is supposed to dedicate. Is it 67 hours? It's basically the age of. of I can't remember exactly how many hours, how many minutes or hours it is. Uh, because obviously a, a soccer project can't be done in that many minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, but what we do to, to to celebrate is we just release one of our projects as open source, or one that we're going to release open source. We just try and get it ready for that day, and then you know and make the announcement. So JPA Unit is a is a Java library that supports unit testing. If you've got a whole bunch of you modeled your, your your data access layer using JPA, and now you want to test it and make sure that your queries are returning the data you expect, you haven't used an or instead of an and, or you done the correct group bars and all of that kind of stuff. You know you need to load your database into a known state, run your queries, and compare the results you expect to the results you get. Um, and that's been always traditionally quite difficult to do. One of the mm-hmm. solutions was DB Unit, um, which just gave me you know, gave us pain and suffering because part of the problem with DB Unit was that it, it used a different mechanism to access the database. So it had its own drivers and its own mapping tools, and so you end up fighting between the two, um, you know, between JPA mapping and between DB DB Unit mapping and all of the, its peculiarities and properties you need to set on its its drivers, etc. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so at least hopefully people find it useful and yeah, you know. Um, we, we use it internally, and it's really made our lives a lot easier, and you know, I'm happy that we did it. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more, I suppose, I suppose next time. Cool. Okay, I think um, that's it for today. For We've just got the, the gig guide to go through. Um, any gigs you're aware of there in Ethiopia, Dan? Are you still, you're still getting back Ask Addis and the, the tech hubs that are available there? Yeah, I'm still sort of selling back in. Um, I, you know, I've, my participation in local groups has been sort of limited up till now, um, mostly because there's just not much happening in terms of meetups. Yeah. So yeah, nothing here so far. Yeah, and also we've got the usual uh, Linux user group, the Josie Linux user group. On the 17th of August, there is a, a meeting. Uh, there's two talks being given, more logs. Um, so let's talk about logs and how you analyze logs and basically log capturing and storage and stuff using uh, Logstash and Elasticsearch. So, you know, we always have those problems. You want to collate data from different servers and see correlations between them and query them, etc. Um, then there will be a talk, uh, I'll actually be giving it on network namespaces, just a 10-minute talk just demonstrating network namespaces. Actually, I want to do a talk at some stage on control groups as well and what you can use them for. The other thing with the, with the Josie Lug, we're linking up with a community uh, hub uh, out in Clipfontaine uh, view, and basically they're running, sort of ch- trying to get provide the local community with access to computing and provide them with some computing skills. So they're all running Ubuntu um, Linux there, and we're going to be running a Linux Essentials, an LPR Linux Essentials course. Uh, it won't be able to do the whole course because it's going to be on the weekends, like let's say a Saturday uh, for four hours for four weeks. We're running a Linux Essentials training course there just for the community people to come along. Um, so the Lug will be helping out with that. And also Lug members who are interested in learning stuff can attend as well. That sounds great. Yeah, look, it looks, it looks promising. What we just got to do is, you know, once we get it going, then look for some old computers from people. Because I think currently there is about six or seven old computers there. Um, you know, so there's not enough to really go around. Uh, the Lug members will just tell them they have to bring their own laptops if they want to participate. We'll leave the, the machines for the local community um, you know, to use. Yeah, and then there's on the 31st of August, there's the jo- Josie Java User Group Meetup. And they've got, there's two sections to this meeting. It's a beginner to mid-range and senior to mid-range, or suppose mid-range to senior. 
And that's not senior in age. That's senior in terms of knowledge and experience. <laughs> okay. Although often they go hand in hand. Right. <laughs> One would say it's it's inevitable that age and experience go hand in hand. Okay. So the, the junior one is rapid prototyping with JBoss Forge. I'm not quite sure what JBoss Forge. I know what JBoss is. Uh, so JBoss Forge. And the mid-range to senior is robust REST architecture. So if you're interested in that, um, all of these groups are on Facebook and on um, Meetup. So if you go to Meetup and you search for Josie Lug or Josie Jug, you'll find it there. Then there's Maker Labs. Maker Labs meet every Wednesday. Um, they're basically a maker group uh, building 3D robots. I mean, not robots, sorry, 3D printers and drones and things like that. We, we want to build a robot. <laughs> that you can find at makerlabs.co.za. And there's House for Hack. They're also a maker group that meets in Centurion. So, so Maker Labs meets in Randburg. It's actually at the Jumping Bean offices. They use the some space there for everybody to use. And then there's House for Hack, which meets every, I think, Monday or was it every Tuesday. Um, you can look at um, houseforhack.co's and go to the website and find information. They're like one of the larger maker groups in South Africa. They do a lot of stuff like high-altitude gliders and what all. So very exciting, interesting stuff. Yeah, do you want to go first on how to contact you? Well, let me ask, I'll ask you, how do people contact you? Uh, yeah, so I have a website at danfowler.net, and you know I have a Twitter account, Dan Fowler, and I'm also on GitHub, Dan Fowler. Those are my ideal, I have the best places to contact me, I would say. Okay, and I'm available on Twitter at mxc4, and also on Google+, with um, mclock4 at gmail.com, and also on GitHub is MXE. Typically, it's either MXE or MXE4. So if you search for me on uh, GitHub, I think it's MXE. And that's where also you'll find JPA unit and all of that good stuff. And soon, once we've got our website up and running, there will be a contact us form there and hopefully forums and things like that to start getting some feedback from, from people. Um, in the meantime, I think if people want to contact us, uh, Dan, what should, what's the best way for people to contact the show itself? Or should we? Well, let's just say we'll have, we'll have our email up Dan at codinginafrica.com and Mark at codinginafrica.com. We'll make sure those are up and running by the time the show gets gets published. Great. Okay. Okay, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening and happy hacking. <laughs>